All right, the scripture reading today is Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over and over all and through all and in all. Thanks, Kara. Well, let me join Karen just welcoming you. My name is Nate, serve as a pastor here at Redeemer City. Uh, let, me, let me say a, a term here. And I want you to think what, what first comes to mind. Okay, here it is. The church. What's your hot take? <laughs> Listen, I'm sure there's a mixture of responses when I say that. Uh, for some of you, you've had a positive, formative experience in the local church. Maybe you've seen it help shape you. Maybe it's helped shape the ones you love and who they are today. I imagine for others of you, when I say the church, there's a mixture of a measure of disillusionment, maybe even disappointment. Maybe it's the latest leader in the church who's fallen again to a scandal, or maybe it's your own personal experiences of being hurt or let down by the church. I imagine for some of you, when I say the church, it might even feel like nostalgia. You know, it's kind of one of those things you look back, it served a place of maybe connection, community, but it sort of seems a little bit obsolete. You know, something in the past that people did. And yet, no matter our disposition today, no matter our hot take on the church, we're in the final couple of weeks of the Apostles' Creed, and we land at the part of the creed that says this, I believe in the holy Catholic church, the communion of saints. You know, we've been saying from the beginning of this series that the Apostles' Creed is the earliest confession it's actually one that grew up grassroots in the early church. It's what summarized the essentials of the Christian faith. It actually was most often used by those being baptized. They would recite it. And yet, at this point, notice what it says. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Not only is that one of the most misunderstood lines, because of the word Catholic, we'll get to that one in a moment, but you might even say this is, why is it even in the creed? I mean, if you've been around the church, you can understand why, of course, we're going to have God the Father in there and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But, but the church? What does it even mean to believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints? So in order to answer that, let me just back up for one moment and ask one question that will frame our whole time this morning. What is the church? What is it? Well, the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians in our section today, he summarizes it this way. And this is how I'll frame our time today. The church is one body called out by grace and called to 
live as one. The church is one body called out by grace and called to live as one. So let me pray and we'll unpack that. We'll get in. Father, would you take our disillusionment, our disappointment, our hopes, our dreams, our fears about the church, and would you help renew it through your word? Would you help us to see what the church is, who she is, then also who she is to be in this world? And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the church is one body called out by grace. Think for a moment of all the groups, all the various communities that you align yourself with. You know, some of you, you get up at like a crazy time in the morning and you go and you work out. It's called CrossFit. Ever heard of it? You know, like you're just, it's this amazing community. Uh, that's not me. Um, others of you, you, you love literature. You find someone who loves Jane Austen and you're like, Bees knees, like let's hang out, right? You, there's something there. Um, others of us, all of us in some manner, we all have families. We don't pick them, do we? Right? There are various things that kind of knit us together in these communities. And in our passage, Paul, writing to the church, piles up seven acclamations of what binds the church together. Look at verses four to six. Paul says this, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is quite the list. I mean, he's just piling, piling, piling. One Lord, one faith, one faith, one baptism. He's just piling. This is what you have in common. But I want you to notice this. There's also an assertion of something that he's saying is absolutely true about the church. He begins it this way. You are one body and one spirit. And that's actually what the creed is referring to when it says the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Catholic is not referring to the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic means universal. Therefore, Paul is saying, that the creed is saying, this is referring to all Christians at all times in all places, in all cultures, and all ages. There's one body. From Swedish Lutherans, to Korean Presbyterians, to African Pentecostals, to Chinese house churches, to Egyptian Copts, though distinct in their particular communities, they are mysteriously, yet truly, united as one. There is one body. And we need to go back a moment in Paul's letter. 
because he talks about how this happened, how this church became one. Look at Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. Paul writes this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul in this passage is speaking with a division of humanity that was thousands upon thousands of years old. Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and non-Jews. And it was marked by hostility and division. And notice what Paul says, that wall has been broken down. That Jesus has broken down that wall through the cross. He has reconciled these deeply divided people and has made them one new man. In short, they are a new humanity. And I want you to think for a moment, um, whatever you think about the God of Scripture, would you take note of this? In the midst of our cultural moment in which there is so much division and there's so much divide, notice what this passage is saying. That God himself is at work bringing people together, reconciling them together into one family. Let me, let me put it this way, and this may sound completely backwards to you this morning, but I'll just say two things and just listen for a moment. The church is the most inclusive and diverse community in the world. What do I mean? One author notes this. When the church was born in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, a time in which everyone had their own God, it was a very highly stratified world. And it was the Christians who mixed people from different races and classes in a society where women had a low status, had a lack of economic equality. It was the church that actually offered them greater security and equality. But also note this, in our present moment, listen to these stats, Richard Bachman notes that the, of the major religions in the world of Christianity, Christianity is the most diverse. 90% of Muslims live in one part of the world. 80% of Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India. Christians, listen to this, 25% live in Europe. 25% live in Central South America. 22% live in Africa. 15% live in Asia. And 12 to 15% live in North America. It's the most diverse family. It's the most diverse community. The church is one body called out by grace. And so here's a question for you. How is that possible? How is it so radically inclusive? And how is it so radically diverse? Well, let's back up a moment and go to earlier in chapter 2 
where Paul writes this. He says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul has just laid out the human condition, and it is dark. Spiritually dead, objects of wrath. But then he turns it. And listen to what he says in verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What makes it so inclusive, what makes it so diverse, is grace. The entry point into the family, into the community, is this, is all you need is need. You need to recognize that you're broken, that you're sinful, and then guess what? You see Jesus, and you see what he's done on the cross, and you say yes, and you are in. On the one hand, it's exclusive because it's Christ and him alone. That's where salvation is found. But on the other hand, it's radically inclusive because anyone can join. Anyone can enter. Anyone. Most of the time, with the communities we're involved with, there's a level of, achieve, of achievement your vocation, your job. It's a certain protocol, a certain, you know, ability that gets you there, competency. Or CrossFit, I couldn't do that. Forget about it. You know what I mean? Like, but it's usually what you do. But the church is different. It's not about trying. It's about relying. It's relying on Christ. And listen, this is what changes the relationships. Because there's one other note that the heart of Christianity, if it's a man dying for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness, then that leads to radically different ways of dealing with others who are very different from you. Because that's how God has treated you. The church is one body, called out by grace. Let me put it this way. In 2007, Steve Jobs unveiled the first iPhone. He said, and I quote, an iPod, a phone, an internet communicator. He said, an iPod, a phone, are you getting it? Jobs, in his keynote, delivery said that this phone was five years ahead of anything else. In other words, he was saying the future is now in the present. And it was a flawless presentation. But did you know that it almost didn't happen? Behind the scenes, there were bugs and glitches. Many experts thought there's no way this, this presentation is going to even you know, go off. The phone would crash, 
during the, during the playing of music or videos. If you try to surf the web and send an email, it would turn into a brick. It would run out of memory, needing to be restarted. Listen, so many of you are in software, right? And you know what it's like to launch something. All the bugs, all the glitches. What does this have to do with the church? The church is this. The church is a beta launch of God's future for humanity. And it has more than a few glitches. Let's put it that way. Let's be honest. More than a few glitches. But it is to be the future rushing into the present. A new humanity reconciled to God in Christ and reconciled to one another in Christ. That's what the church is. Which is why, which is why Paul says this in verses 1 to 3. In other words, if it's true that the church is one body, well, what does that mean for us? Look at verses 1 to 3. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith. I kept on going. I should have stopped at verse 3. You get it, right? So verse 3 closes out, unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When Paul says at the beginning of verse 1 that he urges them to walk in a manner worthy, it's a little bit like this. Do you remember that line in Spider-Man? You know the one like the, I don't know, there's so many multiverses now, but maybe the original where I think it's Uncle Ben turns to him and says, with great power comes great responsibility. And Peter Parker realizes he can't just stand back and do nothing. He has to move forward in light of what he's been given. Paul is saying this, if you're in the church, do you understand the high callings? The high privilege that you have of being God's people? If that's the case, then you have great responsibility. And in verse 3, he spells it out. He says this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And notice something there. Paul doesn't say create the unity. You are one because of what Christ has done. He says, no, you maintain it. And that word eager, underneath it, is a sense of haste, of urgency, a sense of crisis. Paul is saying this, listen, the church is one body. Christ has done something. You are one, and now you have a great urgent call to live it out. To live as one. How do you do that? One of the things I love about Paul is he's not an optimist. Like, he's real. So, notice what he says. Uh, in, I think it's verse 3. He says, Bear with one another in love. Bear with one another. He knows 
that the church is like a waiting room in a hospital. It's a lot of sick people who take a lot of time to grow and change. And so Paul says, here's how you maintain the unity of the Spirit. You bear with one another. One of my pastor friends put it this way. He defined bearing with one another this way. He said, giving room for others to be themselves. That's so good. Some of you are like, well, how long? <laughs> right? Can we just pause for a moment here? How long do we do that? Um, well, you probably just did it, but think for a moment of that person who rubs you the wrong way. Or maybe you've got nothing in common with except for maybe Jesus, right? Who is it hard for you to be around? Paul is saying right there, that's where it starts. And mind you, giving room for others to be themselves, it doesn't mean that you don't share concerns or that you ignore blind spots. But I'll say this, it takes much timing and much wisdom to know how to enter in. But that's for another sermon. But I want to show you what Paul says here, because he lays out some virtues to cultivate, to do this. He says, how do you bear with others? With all humility and gentleness and patience. Humility. I love what Lewis, he said it the best. It's not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. So good. Let me give you one practical way of maintaining unity and walking in humility. Listen. Listen. You know, it's interesting, you know, Dave mentioned up here the last couple of years, I mean, right, it's, it's been a lot of issues to work through. And oftentimes what happens in our day, and it happens in the church, is we just make assumptions about people. We look at what they post on social media, and we're like, I'm done with that person. Have you listened? Have you understood where they're coming from? When Paul says, with all humility, to bear with one another, he's, he's saying, don't hold people like this. He's saying, lean in to those relationships. But not only that, gentleness. It means to consider others. It means to waive one's rights. That's really hard, is it not? Here's one practical note. Think through what you're going to say before you say it to the person. Weigh your words. Think about your motives. And then there's patience. It means, it literally means long-suffering. You know what that means? It means showing up and enduring shortcomings of others. It means them treating you wrongly over time without getting bitter. 
Does that seem hard? <laughs> You're all like, are you serious? No, that's seriously what Paul wrote. That's what it says. And yet, do you not know? This is why Christianity is so different. This is why the church is so different. There's no way you can do that. Unless you understand that there is already one that has been and is that way towards you. You know, I say this often. I think it was about when I got to 30. I began to look at my 20-year-old self. And I was like, I don't really like my 20-year-old self. Man, just the, the self-absorption, the pride. And then I got to 35. When I look back at my 30-year-old self, I'm like, oh, man. The self-absorption, the pride. <laughs> and now I'm 45, and I'm saying the same stuff. Um, but it makes me reflect because I'm so grateful for the people around me that have been patient with me, that have given me room to be myself, and slowly over time change. And guess what? I know when I get 50, I'm going to do the same thing about who I was today. <laughs> that's the whole rub, right? But that's the wonderful piece about the church. Because we orbit about, around one who has Jesus, who has humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He has been gentle with us. He has waved Oh, he has waived his rights. And he's been patient, long-suffering, week after week when we don't get it. What does it mean to be the church? What is the church? It, it's to be one body, called out by grace, and called to live as one. You know, um, recently I heard a term that was coined about different types of movies in Hollywood. I didn't know this, but one of the genres for movies is called a buddy movie. And the basic theme of it is a movie that puts two people together who don't like each other and in the end, they find out they need each other to do this incredible thing, you know? Um, I'm going to date myself here, but um, my favorite buddy movie is Tommy Boy. And, um, it, you know, so you've got Chris Farley who plays, you know, this kind of very privileged but very, like, lazy, you know, um, character who's the son of a very rich, you know, auto, indus auto industry person. And he gets this job, gets his office, all this stuff. And then there's his, you know, co-worker, David Spade, who's like the hardworking, very critical, you know, like he's worked for everything and, you know, Tommy gets everything. And they hate each other. But then the dad dies, you know, so they have to go save the company together, right? So they get out on the road and, right, by the end, they know they need each other. Do you realize that that's the church? I mean, 
right now, think about this, Paul. He's writing this letter. Do you know who Paul is? Paul used to persecute the church. He used to kill Christians. And now, some of those who probably knew people that he imprisoned and maybe even killed, what are they doing? They are together. Laying down their lives together. For the one who has laid his life down for them. And all of this is simply to serve the world. So I said, church, we're a buddy movie. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we confess, we just need your help. Um, there are people that we would rather be at arm's length with sometimes or not in the same room. Would you soften our hearts? Lord, we pray in the midst of just a divided world that in some way or another, people could see a glimpse of what you've done and who you are based on the work of Christ. You'd help us to live out this oneness that you've worked. And we ask this in your name. Amen.